Hello and welcome to our Kentucky home. Eric King here and I'm just going to come out and say it. You are in luck today because my guest, she's a powerhouse. I want you to pay attention to what is happening in this country. This is a movement. We are standing in Louisville, but across this country, people are standing because they are tired, because they are sick and tired of being sick and tired. We deserve better. You deserve better. My child deserves better. So when I first started toying with the idea of this podcast, Sadiqa Reynolds was the guest I had in mind. I am so fascinated with how her brain works that I've become almost a student of how she thinks and leads and communicates. I've known her for years, but I, and perhaps you, never knew her backstory. As president and CEO of the Little Urban League, she's a force for change. As a person, she's layered, accomplished, extremely vulnerable, and commanding. I'm excited for you to meet the real Sadiqa Reynolds. Ms. Sadiqa Reynolds, president and CEO of the Louisville Urban League. First of all, welcome. I, uh, I'm so happy to have you on. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. This is exciting, Eric King. I, well, you know, every time I talk to you, I go on and on and on about how uh, fascinating I think you are. And I, I, I think I tell you all the time, too, I love following you on social media because anytime I have a gut gut reaction to something, I go to your social media to check whether or not I'm right. Like, wait a minute. Are we upset about this or is this OK? Like, what, what's the direction from Sadiqa? And I really do have that kind of regard for you. So so I'm super glad to have you. I love that. I appreciate it. I really do. You do. You are always so kind and so good to me. I have to tell you this funny story, though, related to that. My daughter has a friend at school who I love. I mean, I, I always loved her, but I really love her now because she says this thing in school when something goes wrong or whatever. She says, what would Sadiqa do? And of yep. course, my daughter hates it. Right. My daughter's like, oh, my God, what are you talking about? But for me, I just I'm like, she's my favorite. She's my favorite friend of yours. So thank you for um, using the social media, my social media in that way. And if you and I both think it, then we must be right about it. <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> and we'll get into your, your current work at the uh, Louisville Urban League. But, you know, one of the things that that stands out to me about you is how much you trust your brain. And what I mean by that, Sadiqa, you, you might remember years ago, um, I hosted a race in Louisville panel and you were on it. And um, I remember personally not wanting to host that. I didn't want to be part of, uh, I didn't want to be the journalist anchoring that because I felt like it was too easy for the black guy at the station to be thrown into that role and it to be, to appear to be more performative than mm -hmm. actually beneficial. Uh, I'm glad that I did do it though. But I noticed during that interview, there was a gentleman on there who I believe was the president of the FOP at the time. And he had written some things that were controversial. And he was going on and on and on about something. And you gracefully chimed in and set him straight. And before you could finish your sentence, he said, well, I disagree with that. And Sadiqa, you turned to him so gracefully and said, and I knew that you would. And then you went right about your argument. And that moment right there, Sadiqa, was when I thought this woman has a brain power that I've never seen before because you're able to um, not only make an argument articulately, but you're able to diffuse other people's arguments so well. And it's masterful. And I don't think a lot of people think about it like that. And so that's why I want to dive into your brain. Um, <laughs> I, I do. Uh, but before we get there, let's dive into what you're doing now. Obviously, uh, a massive position with the Louisville Urban League as president and CEO. Um, exponentially more influential and important after recent years. So kind of talk to me about, you know, the, the work of the Urban League and, and how you lead that organization. 
Well, the Urban League work is jobs, justice, education, health, and housing. We're one of about 92 affiliates across the country. And the specific affiliates really do take on the personality, I think, of the leader of the organization. And so here, um, I think this one has certainly taken on my personality. I've been able to build a team around the things that I think are important. I have a remarkable team um, of really talented geniuses that are willing to help, um, you know, really push forward so much of what this community needs. Um, so you hear jobs, justice, education, health, and housing. We are very, very holistic organization. We're, we're very much about supporting folks who might come in for a job, right? They may come in for help with a resume or help with finding employment, but we're also maybe going to help them with housing or we're going to help them with um, the things that they need on the front end to be ready for that employment, whatever it is. In some cases, we have people who we have taken literally from homelessness into the workforce, into, you know, actually getting promoted on the job. So then they're able to catch up on their child support or do what is right for their families. You know, um, people who for the first time are employed in ways that they have health insurance so they can take care of themselves so they can go to the dentist and do different things like that. But we also build houses, you know, we we very much are in the front of the, you know, affordable housing. How do we ensure that people aren't pushed out of this neighborhood? So we are doing all kinds of stuff. We're the oldest HUD certified agency in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, which basically means if you come to the league for housing counseling, you can take the certificate and go and the city when they have the money will give you down payment assistance. We also run the largest um, free tax preparation site in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. We also run the largest free expungement clinic in the Commonwealth of Kentucky um, and largest. And, and listen, we partner with legal aid. That's another thing I'm really proud of. We, we want to partner with other organizations. So we're not one to say, oh, we can do it all and we don't want anybody else to help. We want everybody to help. And so where we see others doing good work, we don't go in and say, well, now we're going to do this program instead. No, we're really about legal aid. Tell us what you can't do. Tell us about the clients you can't take care of so that we can step in to fill that gap. And how do we work together? And that's that's what we do. I mean, so now we're, we're getting into the entrepreneur space because no one really owned the space enough to increase the number of Black businesses in our community. And so we're we're going to do it. We're going to make sure that black business owners have access to capital so that they can build the infrastructure they need and so that they can grow those businesses because we understand that entrepreneurs create jobs. And so that's really important for us. So I, I am proud of the work at the league because we are a civil rights organization. And that, first of all, that's what people have to understand. So sometimes I think there is this feeling of, oh, my gosh, there's Sadiqa again. There's the Urban League again. Well, it's jobs, justice, education, health, housing. So we have an opinion. And, and our perspective is that of one that leads to empowerment for Black people and for others as well. We're not just, you know, because we, we understand that if we help um, folks who have been redlined out of opportunity, it really does help everybody. If, if we can change outcomes in the West End of Louisville, we can change outcomes in Smoketown and Newburgh, then we can change this whole city. And so that's what we're trying to make sure people understand. And this idea that this pie is limited. And so if I help Eric, then, you know, that's it. If I, if I do this podcast, I can't do anybody else's podcast. I can't do, well, that's ridiculous. Who, who, what makes us think that we're so limited? We, we are in America. You know, we can do anything that we set our minds to. The issue is that we haven't been willing as a country and as a community to really set our minds to changing outcomes for people who have been beat down and held back in this country, in this community because of bad policy. So my number one thing is I run a civil rights organization. And number two, right, I run programs to help people who have not yet achieved equality and equity in this country. And so that's what we're doing. I think the work is magical um, and we're at a crossroads in our country. So 
we'll see what happens next. When you list all of those things like that, um, how do you do it? I mean, <laughs> I think that's a fair question, right? Because you, you list all of these things that are institutional and ingrained in our country legally. And you talk about tackling those things and you talk about some of the obstacles, but maybe my laser, my, my pinpointed question here is, how overwhelming is that every weekday, weekend at 8 a.m. when you get started? So I think that is a very fair question and I appreciate the ask. What I have found is people who come to work for the league, people who choose this life, <clears throat> unfortunately, we are not very, or, or fortunately, depending on how you see it, we're not great with boundaries because I am a part of the group that I am trying to lift out of oppression. And so I am oppressed myself in some ways, right? I certainly have a different level of privilege. I have a law degree. I am a former judge, a former inspector general. I can text somebody in the governor's office. I can call the mayor, you know, whether he takes my call or not, I, I can call him. Um, so I understand the level of privilege that I have, but still, I find myself overwhelmed, as does the team here, because it is a lot of work, because you're constantly up against these systems. So what we have done is we've built excellence into each department. And so we have really strong leaders that are able to help guide the work. I sort of set the vision, I guess, for the for the organization, but I do that in conjunction with this fabulous team that I've put together. And then they lead in the work um, where they lead, where they can. And I get pulled in when it's something that, you know, is sort of that they need my help with. They need my voice on. Um, and so, but it is, Eric, I, to be honest with you, it's very overwhelming. And there are lots of encouraging things that happen along the way. But you also say, my God, what is the end? And Lisa said something to me a couple of weeks ago, Lisa Thompson, who works here. She said, it's, it's the runner who's running and doesn't know. You have no idea where the finish line is. You have no idea. You just keep running. You just keep running. And you do that in the face of your own life trauma. You do that in the face of when you work with people who you love, you know, you watch them suffer. And I have, and with COVID, my staff has personally suffered so much and still had to find the strength to get up and go out and serve people who, as broken as some of us might have been individually, people who still needed and had lost more than us. And so we just keep going. Um, but it is, it is difficult. It is difficult to manage. And this is a bad way to put it, but it is, you know, I'm going to say it. Imagine trying to buy someone else's freedom while you still have a debt on your own. And the strain of that. That's the, that's what this job is like. I am not the, I'm praying for you guy. I'm not the person that sits in the background and says that uh, you're not going to get a text from me that says city I'm praying for you. It'll, it'll say something much different, but I got to tell you, um, especially during the heart of the demonstrations in downtown Louisville, um, there were points city where I thought, when is she going to get to her breaking point? Because you talk about your staff and I get that and I appreciate that you did. But, you know, you don't just lead the Urban League, City Club, you know, surprise. You know, a lot of us look to you for, for leadership and guidance on, on different things. And I feared that you were almost to a point emotionally um, where I, I don't, I don't, I don't think you would have just thrown your hands up and walked away. That's not what I'm getting at. But I, how much can one person take? And, and I, I don't mean that. I, I know you're not carrying the weight of the city, but I know that you were demonstrably emotional about what was happening. 
And I'm curious what your mindset was in the, you know, in, in the depths of that when you were seeing what looked like the full force of the United States military walking through downtown Louisville. You saw people protesting and then you saw, um, you know, some some people who are outside of the actual movement, you know, doing things that they probably shouldn't. And then people were using them as a reason to say, see, look at what you all are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, you're fighting so many battles simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And I just was so curious about how you were internally. Mm. I was like a lot of people, I was exhausted. I was, um, I was angry. I was so hurt. I remember the first so what people don't always know is that we knew the day Breonna Taylor was murdered. We at the Urban League got that information from the police department and we got it in a way that they explained that she did from their perspective, which clearly was not an honest one, um, that she basically was caught in the crossfire of um you know, the, this drug dealer was in there. I mean, they just, the whole thing, right? And it was in March 13th for me was the day that I had also sent most of my staff home because of this virus. So it was really our first day in the building with just the three, there were three people here when we got the call about Brianna. And from there, I remember saying there's this is odd and asking the police over and over again why there was no body camera footage and getting their explanation about that. And then even the um, in the and, and people don't seem to make this connection, but we had Ahmaud Arbery as well, who we were told was, you know, a thief and all of this stuff. And then uh, George Floyd. But it was really and as angry as people were about those two cases, it was the release of the 911 tape that sent Louisville over the edge when we realized that Kenny is in custody. And, you know, shout out to the courageous judge, Olu Stevenson, who actually released Kenny, um, who was Brianna's boyfriend, um, released him from jail, but had him on home incarceration still, but at least he was released. And we knew something was wrong because what judge releases the guy who is alleged to have, you know, shot a police, a black man shoots a white police officer and he's on home incarceration. What kind of case is this, you know? But when we heard him call 911 and realized that the police had access to that, the Commonwealth attorney had access to that and they were still pursuing the charges, that's what sent people to the streets. And I remember going out the first night of the protest and it was so overwhelming. It was so emotional. It started on Main Street and uh, sort of right there, um, sort of right at the bridge, actually, in the Yum Center. I think you were on Facebook Live, uh, parts of that, too, because I think I remember uh, Yeah. Well, what ended up happening, actually, I don't think I was. Somebody was. So this is, um, that's the night that the guy was shot. There were, and, um, all, and somebody had a video of me crawling on the ground to him which um, I, don't, I don't even know who, I've, I've lost track of that video because it was posted and I would, I'd actually like to have it. But anyway, um, <laughs> it started that night. And I just remember saying, in my city, in my city, these police officers are lined up like this with weapons. This, I, this is, it looked, Louisville looked like a foreign land it did not even feel like America. And I just, the pain, the shame um, that we would respond to citizens, to residents of this community in that way, that you, you would kill someone, you know, government would kill someone and then respond to our pain and outrage by being willing to kill us for raising our voices so the first night when I went out, I really just went to see. But after that, it was like, no, I am here because I am a black woman enraged and I must do something to change what is happening. And they have to understand 
that people like me with degrees and 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 opportunity and access and central air and and garages to park in are angry enough to hit the streets to say not in our city not in our city you will not do this we will have accountability there will be answers you know so over that time period that summer and then on it was exhausting eric it was like because i was <laughs> this is crazy building a sports and learning complex um running the urban league still very concerned that i had people who were employed and able to serve this community right because we were still we shifted we were delivering groceries and and buying groceries and getting people to whatever appointments they needed because Uber and, and Lyft wasn't really quite working. People didn't want you in their vehicles and so things slowed down. So we sort of stepped in for the clients we, we needed to. Um, we were in a pandemic, so we were also doing testing. All of a sudden, things that I, at the time that Norton Healthcare called us and said, we need to run a testing site from the Urban League because there's not a lot of trust in the black community. People are afraid. And so we need your help, Urban League. And none of us really was ready to get tested, to be honest, because we're a part of the community that's skeptical too. And so we had to work through our own fears to get tested ourselves. And then to say to the community, this is, we, we can do this. We need to do this. We must do this. Um, so all of that stuff was happening and we were protesting at night. We were, we were protesting and I was, um, to be honest, leading the charge to build a sport, that sports and learning complex. We had created 302 jobs and I was almost out of money because the stock market was a mess and none of the donors, I didn't know what was going to be happening. And so Am I going to lay everybody off? Do I shut down construction? Well, I was advised to shut down construction. Um, and that was difficult um, <laughs> because I didn't want to be responsible for sending people home from work who have families to take care of. And also I knew, and this was a bigger thing for me, Black people always get promised something and it doesn't get delivered. And I didn't want to be another part of that. And even though I had the excuse of the pandemic and the civil unrest, and there was a line in everybody's contract that talked about acts of God. And, you know, if this was something that I wouldn't be blamed for. So I could have stopped the construction and just said, well, this isn't, this isn't my fault. You know, this is just, this is life. This is something that happens. Um, but I just, in my soul, to your point, I think, I don't know if we talked about this on air or off, but my trust in my gut, I mean, my gut said, don't stop. You know, God planted this seed in you and you just, if God wants it to stop, he'll stop it. But the fact that it's still possible that you can still work outside, even in this pandemic, you know, you don't want to stop construction. So I just pushed through. So, I mean, I was working all day on Urban League stuff, right? And trying to partner with different organizations and trying to make sure that the Urban League shifted in a way that made sense for community, whether that was testing or getting groceries out or working with seniors, whatever we had to do. And then trying to figure out how to close a multi-million dollar deal um, as I'm watching the bank account slowly dwindle. And then, um, which is, by the way, I'm going to run out of cash, right? And if you run out of cash, everybody loses their job anyway. So <laughs> I was, I was, um, it was not a good, and then protesting literally, I mean, as much of the night as um, humanly possible, as needed, as much as I needed to, right? For my own self. And I think, let me tell you something about raising money and donors seeing you out protested in their city. Like it, it is not, um, <laughs> that's a very, we, I have a very complicated existence. And, that's and a I, very difficult intersection. It's, it, it is, it is very difficult. And, and, uh, and let me tell you, you do get threatened. You get threatened um, with, with defunding your organization and that's been done. 
there are donors in this city who have called me. They didn't just pull their money, but they called to tell me they were pulling it and why, and that they were going to tell their friends not to give. And they have, they have been successful at that. And, um, and that is, is what it is. And then, um, <laughs> um, even after the, I don't know if it was a complete climate shift after Brianna Taylor, you know, when, when the world, finally wreck, I call them the newly woke city <laughs> when the world finally realized that diversity, equity, and inclusion was important. You know, were people still pulling funding in those moments? Um, not, so, no, not after. I think the calls though, people want to understand what are you doing? What are you, why? That's not with the Urban League. It, what I have been getting since I got here is, that's not what the Urban League does. That's not what the Urban League, you know, that's not Urban League stuff. And so I have to say to people, no, remember the Urban League is a civil rights organization. So if you pull everything, the last thing that we will do is stand for civil rights. That is what we are here to do. So the programs are necessary. We, want, we, we run phenomenal programs, but let's be clear about um, what it is that we do and what we have to do. And I think that, that I've been really steadfast in that. So the, the challenges with donors are um, people can support the movement, but they want you to do it the way they want you to do it. And they don't want their lives disrupted. Well, the challenge is that sometimes you need to understand how our lives are disrupted and you, you don't get to have peace if we don't get to have justice. And that was my response to people during, during the um, protests and everything, right? There's, you shouldn't be able to be at peace because the world is a mess. Things are not good for us. And you can't just go about your life normally, right? You have to respond to this and you have the power to push the people in power to do something different. And so it is my job to be out there because that is where the people need me. And that's what I'm here for. So we weren't being violent. We were not setting fires. We were not busting out windows, but as you saw and everybody did, there were people who came into our city who, who did do those things. And those things were unfortunate and they were not good but you know what was so troubling to me is that they got a response. You know, the, the guy with the hammer busting out and who happened to be a white guy, interestingly enough, right? But busting out the windows. I mean, that got a response from our business community in ways that some other things hadn't. So, uh, you know, it was all I can tell you about that time period is, and this is, this is going to seem let me see if I'm going to really say this. I remember hearing some people say how bored they were during the pandemic. They were so tired of being home. They were this and they were that. And I just remember thinking, when will be our time to be bored? When will I, when will I rest? When will I have an opportunity just to work from home, not have to go in, not have to worry? When, and we haven't had it at the league. We, we never closed our doors. We never stopped serving to the point where in the beginning, and these are the kinds of things I have to think about as a leader, we have a construction training program and it's a national program and they have to be tested. We called our, our clients in and told them that they needed to be tested, um, and, but we couldn't let them in the building. So we did it in the parking lot. And I remember thinking, oh my God, if somebody rides by and sees us with all these men and women, sitting on the ground or sitting in their cars? Will they think that the Urban League is horrible because we won't take a chance on letting people in? But it was just, we didn't really know then like how the virus was spreading. We couldn't let them in, but we wanted to, we did not want people to miss an opportunity to have work, to have their certification. So we moved forward with it. But always thinking about the optics of it and how you're making people feel. And, and I say this, Eric, and I know I'm going off on a tangent, but I just, when I was in the Bronx as a little girl, 
I got sick and my aunt had to take me to a free clinic. And I was raised by my mother, but I happened to be with my aunt this particular summer. And um, I remember having to sit in line, being very sick, swollen all over and uh, feeling like I looked horrible. I had this, I was having a reaction. I actually was stressed. I just, my body reacts to stress in strange ways. And um, I hated that feeling of just sitting for hours waiting to see a doctor and like as if because you are poor you have nothing better to do with your time than to sit and wait for hours and hours so I'm very mindful of how we treat people who need us who finally have the courage to come and ask for the help I because I know most people don't want to do that most people don't want to need your assistance they don't want to have to come to the league so when they do come in here we have a responsibility to, to make them feel like the human beings that they are, you know, and to treat them with respect. And so for us to make a decision that we would just test people literally in the streets, you know, I felt like, but, you know, we have to do, we got to do, but always thinking about how that felt for them. And our clients were just super grateful. They were grateful because that training and that certificate help them be positioned to get jobs. So we literally were able to train people here at the league. And then they end up getting jobs at our sports complex in some cases. In some cases, they went to other places. But to keep as a CEO of this organization, to keep all of that going, when I tell you I learned how to pray in a different way, in a... Um, I, it, it, I had nothing. All I had was God. Like nobody had an idea of what to do. Nobody had a plan. Nobody could say, oh, here's what I've done when I worked and we had a pandemic and there were protests. Here's how I did it. There was no guidance. It was just, I, 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 I cannot explain to you how I woke up in prayer and went to bed in prayer. And I'm a lazy prayer. Very often I do not get on my knees. But I remember two times when I was like, I am God, I am on my knees. And another thing, <laughs> I found myself praying, here we are in a pandemic and all of this stuff is going on and, and, the, and everything is a mess in the world. And I also want to build this complex because I want this community to feel this hope. I want to complete something. And I know we need to finish something to give a gift, you know, to say, I see you. I recognize you. We're cleaning up this contamination. You don't deserve to live with 24 acres of contaminated land around the corner from you. You know, we're going to do this. But I was, I remember like saying, God, why would you do this? Why would you? Let me start something you're not going to let me finish. Why would you do this to me? I'd rather die than not finish this. You know, I don't want to, I want this. And I called um, someone in New York and I was saying, you know, I really need help for this project. I, you know, we got all this bad stuff happening. I really need help. And she said, Sadiqwa, there is a refrigerated truck down the street from my house with dead bodies in it. I, I can, I cannot, you know, I don't even remember what else she said after that, but I just thought, oh my God, what am I doing? Like, what, you know, what am I, should I give? I mean, there was so much, Eric, and it hasn't slowed down the world. I've, I've balanced it better, but I've also, I was listening to Whitney Houston's um, song last night as I was walking my dog. Um, I wasn't, I didn't know my own strength, yeah. you know? And I am just simply, it is very, very clear to me that I am not built to break. You know, that I it, that I am always going to stand because I, probably because I have little breaks along the way, because I'm real good about when I want to cry, I cry when I'm sad, I, I, I allow myself to be sad. I'm very much into honoring whatever I feel in my heart. And so um, I just let it out. And I think a lot of people, maybe, especially leaders, um, you don't have that kind of transparency with your team or even with the the world. 
and I do, you know, I don't know who knows me that hasn't seen me cry, hadn't seen me laugh. You know, I think um, I'm just, I just go with it. And so I think that helps me relieve some of the pressure. That it's beneficial. Song. It's beneficial to see because it, it almost gives people permission to react and to be themselves because, you know, we're always taught, you know, be this, be that leaders don't do this. Leaders don't do that. And when you see somebody like you having a natural reaction, it, it uh, like I said, it gives us permission to do that. Um, I, I do, before we leave, I, I do want to talk more about the track and the success that you're having with it. But I want to circle back. You know, you talk about uh, not being built to break. Where did that come from? You mentioned a lot of people don't, just by nature of how involved you are in this community and have been for a long time. I think people mistakenly think you're born and raised here. Uh, but I know you're from the Bronx. How'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? What did you want to be? All that stuff. Oh, my God. I was born in the Bronx. Both sides of my family are in the Bronx, my father's side and my mom's. And um, so everybody was really within blocks of each other. Then my my father um, was incarcerated when I was five. And so my mother used that opportunity to leave. I grew up. Um, I, I went to school for a long time in Lexington and then would go back to New York to see my family and then also lived in Durham, North Carolina. Um, I wanted to be a, it's interesting, a truck driver, a paralegal, a flight attendant. Those are my three things. When in my junior year of high school, my mother left Durham and I did not want to leave. So she allowed me to stay with another family. Um, to try to finish school there, which I did not do. I ended up leaving and going back to going to Lexington. But anyway, um, but this woman was a godsend because she saw my report card and she said, oh my gosh, your grades are wonderful. What do you want to be? And I said, a flight attendant or a truck driver or a paralegal. And she said, she didn't even deal with the flight attendant and truck driver thing. She said, a paralegal, they do all the work. You don't want to do and they And the lawyers make all the money. You don't want to do that. You want to be a lawyer. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I don't want to do all the work. I'm going to make all the money. So, boom, changed it. And, and part of that for me was I wanted to be in a position to help my mother. I thought that she, that she always, I felt like she got the short end of a lot of sticks. And if I could help her, um, you know, navigate different systems, that outcomes would have been different. And so I um, law school, went to law school and uh, my mother was super proud of me. I'm my mother's only child. My father, and I have lots of brothers and sisters. I actually have nine brothers and sisters. Um, and so, and, and I, I don't know if most people know, I do try to say, when, because I think it's important to tr tell your whole story so that it encourages others. My mother suffered from depression and committed suicide right when I finished law school. So that was, that's very difficult. So that's part of why I'm very true to my own emotions and I'll post on social media, whatever it is, because I think people need to know that everybody goes through, you know, all of these different experiences and we all struggle with our own demons. And it's important to honor that part of yourself and to take care of yourself. And, and so I, it is imperative to me because I have two daughters that I love dearly that the outcomes for me not be the same as they were for my mom or that I don't make the the outcomes even for my father right because statistically I'm, I'm the odds are against me and always have been and so I know that and I'm, I'm intentional about beating those odds and helping other people to do it and I think that that requires honesty honesty with myself and then honesty with others too so um, so I lived in the Bronx, Lexington, Kentucky, Durham, North Carolina, and uh, then my mother moved to Ohio for a little while when I was in law school, and so I kind of bounced around there um, for a little bit, and then she actually she came back by the time I was in law school. That was during college and before law school. So when my mother passed, she was actually living in Lexington, Kentucky, and I was the first was I clerking? Yeah, I was clerking for the Kentucky Supreme Court. So I was the first black woman to clerk for the Kentucky Supreme Court when my mother died. Thank you for talking about that. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. 
Oh. I think it answers a lot of questions about where you get your drive, you know. Mm. When you, so you were clerking, mm. talk about transitioning. Weren't you, I believe you were the inspector or solicitor general? The inspector general. <laughs> a lot of people don't even know what that is, first of all. Um, right. How did that come about? What did you do? Um, how'd you get there? Uh, so let's see, what was I doing? I worked, so I was in private practice for years. I ran my own law office and represented people. I've done everything from DUI to death penalty, um, trials. And so I was, a. I liked the courtroom and, and I rep, and I also was a guardian at litem in my private practice. So I represented abused and neglected children, had a lot of contact with the state because of that work. And, um, the governor was, it was Bashir. Governor Bashir was in office and, you know, as always with governors, they're trying to fill positions and they interviewed me and wanted me to do a practice environmental law. They wanted me to be general counsel for the environment cabinet or something. And I was like, I would die. I don't want to do that. And I interviewed for it and everything. And then I was like, what am I doing? I do not want that job. I would be bored out of my mind, but I was sort of thinking like long-term, a black woman who knows environmental law, this could be very good for all of us, you know, but I didn't want to do it, so I didn't. And they said, you know, there's this role, and because of my work as a guardian at Lightham and the Inspector General for the Cabinet for Health and Family Services regulates the child care industry and the health care industry, and you run the, the, um, the folks who um, regulate childcare, the surveyors and all that, they work for the inspector general. And so auditors and all this, and, and, and it just, it made so much sense with my background. So I was a part of law enforcement at that time. I had a badge and everything. And when I tell you that job, for people who think state employees don't work, they are crazy. Let me, they work so hard with so little resources. I had the best team, smart people, capable people, and I'd have to tell them, it's against the law for you to work overtime and not be paid for. So when I tell you, you can't work, you cannot work. You just can't be working for free. You cannot do it. It's wrong. You can't. I mean, these folks wanted to do whatever it took to get the job done. Talk about dedication, unbelievable. But Eric, we have to talk about that because I'm telling you, I have some stories. I was only there for two years, a little bit less than that. The places I have been trapped, literally physically trapped in, couldn't get out because maybe the media found out I was there and I didn't want to do a bunch of interviews. Or once I had parents who were ready to kill me because I shut a daycare down in the middle of the day. Who? Can you imagine you send your child to daycare and somebody shows up and says, get these kids out of here? Now, everybody, I mean, but they had employed a sex offender over and over. We, I'm like, and that's not, I, don't, I can't tolerate that. So that happened. Then we, oh my gosh, I went to Eastern, I, I have stories. You imagine <laughs> a black woman going in to Eastern Kentucky and doing anything and telling, and being in charge, like, and I'm telling everybody here, this is how it's going to be. Because I never wanted to send my staff into harm's way without being there to support them so that was a very that was a fun job but very 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 stressful Sounds as like was it. trying a death penalty case that was stressful too wow very and stressful. then uh, uh judge i was a judge i was a district court judge had to run for election so i was actually appointed so i was inspector general and I was appointed to serve as a district court judge to finish someone else's term out. The governor did not want to appoint me as a judge. Nobody really knows this story. There are three people who know this story. When I was IG, um, the, it was actually the Courier Journal. I can't remember which reporter called and said, do you still want to be a judge? We knew you want to be a judge. I, they said, because there are some seats coming open. I had no idea because I had my head down as inspector general, wasn't paying attention to what was happening in downtown Louisville. And I said, yeah, and I only said that because I wanted, you know, you always want to keep your options open. But then it caught traction and the governor's looking for appointments and I think wanted to do something historic and, um, you know, appointing four black people at the same time for judicial seats. 
And but I had a group of people in Frankfurt came to me and said, uh, listen, judges, we can find judges. OK, there are plenty of lawyers that want to be judges. But Inspector General, we need you to stay here. You're doing a great job. We need you to stay. And I went home and talked to my husband about it. And he was supportive in saying, you know, do what you what's best for you. And um, and that I had little kids. My kids were very small, two little girls. And I was driving back and forth to Frankfurt at ungodly hours. My kids were tricking their dad into winter. My youngest one had, um, I would leave clothes out and he would take them to school. And she'd, she convinced him that it was princess day. So he had taken my daughter to school with nothing but her underclothes on and one of those, um, um, you know, princess, princess gowns tutus, yeah. Walmart that cost about $14.99 and they're about this thin and it was the middle of the winter. And she had on glass slippers and this is what she went to school in. And she said that everybody was wearing it. And of course they were not. And so I really needed to come home. <laughs> so I said, no, I will take a judicial appointment, governor. Thank you very much. And so that got me back to Louisville. And uh, <laughs> then I lost the election because I am not a politician and I don't give a damn about being a politician. So I'm going to say what I want to say. And I, you know, you just, it is what it is. And so I wasn't good at campaigning and I should never run for anything. <laughs> I, got out, so that's I think a lot of people, I, I know a lot of people have urged you to, to run for different things. And, and uh, from what I've known, from what I've heard you say over the years, it's like, no, you're, you're like, no, I don't want to do that. Um, do you ever? I want to tell them they get on my nerves. I, I want to let you know right now. You said something <laughs> so funny. Sadiqa, you said something so damn funny a few years ago, and I've repeated it several times and acted like I came up with it. You remember Michelle Obama's line, when they go low, we go high. You're like, nope, when they go low, I'll go low too. I'll get down in the gutter and I'll roll around. <laughs> it's not I love good. That. I love it's that. It's true. It's so not a leader, though. Nobody who says that, who has this platform and says, no, when you go low, I'm going to go lower. I'm going to take your knees out from under you. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I think, you know, everybody has their style. And the thing is, I am from the Bronx and my family is there and I'm not. And people deserve grace and mercy when they offer it to others. But there are things that are happening that are so horrible. You just got to deal with it. You got to meet people where they are. And so, you know, we try to go high and be classy and professional and all of that stuff. But I think it's nice to know you got a CEO that'll, you know, get with the best of them. I mean, they, they, they may come for me, but they will not come twice. And we will both leave exhausted. <laughs> from the <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever had, I mean, you so many of the positions you've had when you obviously president of uh, Urban League. Um, inspector general, judge, private practice attorney, you know, every one of the steps that you've had along the way are life goals for other people. Like in anybody else's life would have been massive success points. Have you at any point in any of those positions or even now had some level of imposter syndrome? And I asked that, Sadiqa, because I think we do a disservice to ourselves sometimes of selling ourselves short and thinking we can't, we can't, I'm not ready, or I wouldn't be good at that. Um, have you experienced that in any way? And I guess what I'm asking is, how did you know, let's say for, for the position that you're in now, when that presented itself, what did it take for you to get to the point where you could say, strongly, I can do this and I can do this well. Mm -hmm. So I've had imposter syndrome for sure at different times in my life. For this particular job though, I will tell you, um, I found out about this job from Steve Traeger, who is the CEO of Republic Bank. Steve maybe either texted me or called, I can't remember and said, do you know Ben Richmond, my predecessor is retiring. And he told me that. And I said, really? And I thought, that is the role. I mean, that is it. And I sort of sat alone and I thought about the job and I thought about what the job could be. And then I did something that I've never done. I thought about everybody in this city who would apply for the job. And I knew who thought and whatever. And I honestly said, there nobody 
would do better than me. There's, and I said it to myself and I said it out loud. It is the first time in my life, in my entire life, that I even let people know I was going to interview for a job and that I wanted the job. I've had a million jobs, whether it was Burger King or Inspector General. And I've never told people because, you know, you don't know if you're not going to get it. You don't want everybody to know or because for whatever reason. But this one, I stated my claim. I said, I want to be president of the Louisville Urban League. And if I if I just sort of think about in this community who else wants this or might want it, there's nobody that will do this job better than me. And when I went into the interview, I told them that. I said, I, I have been serving in the mayor's office. I know this community. I know the people who will, I think I know the people who will step forward and none of them will be better at leading this organization. I knew, I was, I mean, crystal clear. And in the end, it came down to me and two people from out of town, actually. There were others who interviewed and who were interested, but the last three were us. And, um, I, you know, and I was right. I think, I think, I mean, I, you know, of course I think that, right. I'm, I'm super biased about me, but I, it is the time in my life where I felt like everything I have ever done has led me here. Everything I've ever practiced, everything I've ever studied, everything I've done to serve this community, whether it was at a, as a public defender or in private practice or as a guardian at Lightham or as the inspector general, everything I've done has prepared me for this. I am so ready. I can hit the ground running. And I did, and I have, and I feel honored and blessed to be here, to be able to understand God's purpose for my life and to be in a place where I can use it. And I feel like I really can do good. And um, so this is the job that no, no, no imposter syndrome here. The last time I really remember feeling overwhelmed by, am I good enough? Can I really do this? Was in um, probably in law school, I think, when I just, I mean, you know, the odds were just so against me. And I remember sitting in my, in the living room with my mother and I just said, I just, I don't know if I'm good enough. I'm scared that even when I finish, I won't be able to practice law. Like, will I really understand? Will I know? And she said, um, I can't believe you feel like that. And she said, I, I felt like that. And I've always, I thought it was just me. And at the time, of course, neither of us knew what imposter syndrome was. But we, I remember us talking and crying that day just about not feeling worthy, not feeling good enough, not being capable of handling the trust that people were putting in us. My mother um, was a person who did everything she could to help people and, and her was very much a leader in the company she worked in. She worked for GTE. She was a supervisor and she helped a lot of people come up through the ranks. Um, but she said, you know, I think you're brilliant. But I, and I would say, but of course you do. You're my mother. And then something happened in law school. My first year of law school, they have a competition and I, I, I knew nothing about law school, right? I had no exposure to anybody who had, was a lawyer. I didn't know anything, but I won. I was the best writer in my class, 150 students. Maybe we started with 167, class of 167. And I was the number one writer. It's like my brief, my first year. And that was for me, I was like, oh, and see, they grade you by number, not by name. So I said, oh, no, this is real. This isn't because, see, mo most of my life, I always felt like my personality got me a lot. You know, I felt like people, I can't, I wanted to make sure I had actually developed intellectually. It, it mattered to me that I developed intellectually because if I was in a room, even as a child, I always stood out to people. And so to win a writing competition when they don't know who you are, it's not about your relationship. It's just what you did, what you wrote. It is your work. You have convinced us. You have the best argument and you have written it in a way that is the most convincing of all these other people. That changed the game for me because I knew that I, I had what it takes. I had it. 
And it wasn't just my charming personality. And you know what I mean? It was so much more. And so from there, I've just, um, I've, I, and especially, can I just tell you, especially in this role and even at the mayor's office, first, let me talk about being in the mayor's office. Um, I hate bureaucracy and um, I can, you could say things. It was the, it was the job that I had where I really saw myself. You could say things that you thought were really profound and people would literally ignore you. And I had not really experienced that I did experience it in law school some with some you must have never worked in a television newsroom (laughs) I did not I did not (laughs) think about my jobs like I had been the clerk for the Kentucky Supreme you know the law clerk for the chief justice so I wrote in the chief justice's voice so when we wrote something people freaking listened to it those are the kinds of jobs I had and so so all of a sudden you know I'm in these places where I'm saying things and I, people have thought I was smart. And really in the mayor's office, I, I, there were days when I really questioned my own intelligence because they were just, I'm saying like people who just act like they couldn't hear you, just could not even hear you. So that was really interesting for me. And so, um, but I knew I was really surrounded by mediocrity mostly and and I just had to kind of fight through that. Um, I mean, and that's not just, that's just in general, right? The world, but hmm, how can I clean that up? <laughs> well, anyway, I am here confident that I will make mistakes, but I am very clear on where my heart is, what my commitment is and who it is to. And when I say something, people listen and they have to listen, you know, and, um, and I, and I think I do a good job at listening to them. So it's been a long time since I felt like an imposter because too, and you know, this Eric, the more time you spend with powerful people, the more you realize how average so many of them are and why America isn't fixed because the people who are, working on so many of our problems are not creative and they're not confident enough to invite people with answers into the space. And they're usually so interested in holding space that they can't really find solutions because it requires them to lean on others and even maybe sometimes give credit and, and that's not what they're good at. So, again, another podcast for another time. <laughs> I think you're your own walking documentary. I, I, I really do. I, I think you're I think it's very fascinating. And I, and I appreciate you spending so much time with me, because, like I said, I do think there's so much value in seeing someone's roadmap. That to me is as important, if not more important than seeing the final product or not. I don't want to call you the final product because I, I'm, I'm quite sure you're going to continue to grow and, and soar and do all those things. But like I said, it's, it's, it's almost instructional to, to, to know that sometimes Sadiqa had a hard time. Sometimes she struggled and she had decisions to make. And um, I, I just think there's so much benefit in that. Um, I don't really have a lot, uh, a lot more to cover with you because uh, you, you've given me so much, but I feel like I'd be doing you a disservice uh, if I didn't give you a chance to talk about what I think will be one of your legacies, and that's the track. Mm, what can I say? You know, we, we, I came into this job with, um, here I am, our office is located between 15th and 16th on Broadway. At 30th and Muhammad Ali, there was supposed to be this huge development. The anchor tenant pulled out. So I'm started, I've started in this role where we have, there's supposed to be a Walmart at 18th Street that was supposed to come in. And there was supposed to be all of this, you know, it just felt like everything was falling through for our community. 
and I wanted to do something to help. And actually, I didn't want to do it. I wanted somebody else to do it. I just wanted to say, wouldn't it be nice to build an indoor track? And then I thought somebody would go build one. And that's not the way it worked. We ended up winning the opportunity to, to build it because nobody else tried to. So um, <laughs> we raised a record amount of money in a very short period of time. It felt like a very long time, but it wasn't. $53 million project. We borrowed the last 10 million. I think the history books will say that I've probably borrowed the most money of any black woman or black person in the Commonwealth history. I could, I would love to know if I'm wrong about that, but for a civil rights organization to even be positioned to borrow $10 million. Um, so we raised 43 million and then ended up borrowing the last 10 million. And we've built, a, we cleaned up the land at this, these 24 acres were contaminated. We cleaned that. Um, we spent $3 million just doing that part. We've created jobs, as I said, more than 300 jobs in building the facility. We had the highest black spend of any project in Kentucky, high minority spend, high local spend, um, not the highest on local or every, but very high. We met all of our marks and then we just sent it over the top as it related to spending money with black businesses and with black people which I, I'm so very proud of. And then since the facility has been open, we run some after school programming in there, but we also, here's the big thing. It's one of nine state of the art track and field facilities in the world. We have a hydro, in the country, I'm sorry, we have a hydraulic floor. So it is the same material that the Tokyo Olympics were run on. That's what we have. So it's a extremely, one, extremely fast track, one of the fastest tracks in the country. Um, one of the fastest tracks in the world, actually, because the company that built it, um, you know, they do work globally. And uh, we have, you know, the West End Track Club um, practices there regularly. JCPS practices there. Um, U of L, Bellum and Spalding, you know, they they U of L just had a track meet last Saturday, and they'll have more. Uh, but we also can change the floor and have other types of events, whether it's fencing or um, archery, whatever, volleyball, if we wanted to, cheerleading competitions, if we wanted to. And then uh, we were able to have our lunch in there. The Urban League just hosted its largest lunch in more than 900 people. We had Zanona Clayton here, who was the aide to Dr. King. Uh, so it's it's really remarkable. Thornton's is there as a partner to us in a, in a grocery, a small little corner store type business. And what they will do is reinvest profits from their work back into the facility. They're highlighting a black business owner. So we sell a dessert that is owned um, by a black owned dessert company in the Thornton store with the hopes that Thornton's would be able to expand the sales for that company into other parts of the city and other parts of the state and other parts of the world. And then also we have located a company called Sojourney in the Sports and Learning Center. So this is a black owned company that sells t-shirts and mugs and all that kind of stuff. So whenever we're open for events, she'll do that. Um, we also have been doing um, entrepreneurs. We've been highlighting entrepreneurs. So we had about 70 black businesses that were there at the complex and we'll do that over and over again. We also have had children. We had about 48 kids who own businesses who we were able to highlight during an event at the complex. And we had black farmers. So my goal is for this community, black people in this community to touch their own money as often as possible and also to highlight excellence among us. And again, not to do that in a way that um, does not allow other people's businesses to thrive, but just to really make space for us to also be seen and to be able to have um, an opportunity to contribute to our economic empowerment. And so this is, is, is beautiful. I, I, the building is beautiful, but what it stands for is even more beautiful. And it, it just means everything to me that this community supported me and the league as we built that. And, and, and I wanna say, Eric, not only did we have millionaires, white and black, who gave to us to help build this facility. But we had poor black folks who committed $5 a month. Um, we had people who won $500 in the lottery and stopped by here and left $100 to help us. We had people call from hospital beds and said, "We, I wanna see this happen before I die. 
So this project means so much to me because there's so many voices and so many people's blood, sweat, and tears that went into creating this opportunity. So it is it is so much more than a track. It's so much more than just clean, clean green space. It's so much more than just meeting rooms. It is the embodiment of, of hope and what we can do with opportunity. And it is, oh my God, it is such an example of black excellence in every way. It is such an example of black excellence. I was very excited. Um, I was at the Leadership Louisville luncheon at the track. I believe that was the first event that you guys hosted there. It was and the first luncheon, yeah. The first luncheon. And one of the things that pleased me most, Sadiqwa, and I think we can end it here, was when everybody stood and applauded you for the work that you have done to make that a reality. Um, so congratulations to you and thank you on behalf of what might sometimes seem like an ungrateful city. Um, <laughs> but, but you've done the job, you've done the work, and we're all better for it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your work and for your voice and for making room for others and being so um, intentional about it and so honest about your own struggles. Big thanks, of course, to Sadiqa Reynolds. You can learn more about her work at the Louisville Urban League by visiting the Urban League's website at lul.org. That info you'll also find in the show notes. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with Sadiqa as much as I did. Don't forget to like and subscribe.